Hello, everybody. This is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, coming out of the Iron Lion slash Michael Scott Paper Company Studios. Uh, please use them for all of your podcasting and streaming needs. Uh, so today we have a, um, a really, really cool uh, uh, treat today, um, a book review of sorts. Um, so we're going to have uh, Professor uh, Jonathan uh, Galvio uh, out of Boston University. He is actually a uh, professor uh, in the School of Theology over there, and uh, we had a great conversation about his book, The Saints of Santana. And um, if you haven't already heard about it, it's it's a wonderful read. Uh, it's really insightful. I learned a lot uh, th- through reading this, and uh, just excited to have him on and uh, hopefully you enjoy this conversation because I I really did too for coming on uh, if you can uh, introduce yourself uh, really quick yeah i'm jonathan calvillo and i'm mostly here because i'm the author of the saints of santa ana and i'm myself originally from orange county i was born and raised in um the fullerton area my actually still have family in fullerton but I spent a good chunk of my time in Santana and lived about 13 years in Santana. So uh, I look to Santana really as, uh, as home. Uh, you know, when I think about going back and visiting, uh, you know, Santana is a place that I envision as um, the place I want to go back and sort of, you know, try my favorite you know, restaurants and, uh, you know, go to the familiar places. And so the book, in many ways, I hope, captures the heart of the city, at least a sliver of it, right? Um, a certain angle, right? The the religious aspect of it, at least. So, um, yeah, so that's a, a bit about myself. I uh, moved to the city of Boston, where I'm uh, the assistant professor of sociology of religion, at Boston University uh, in the School of Theology. You know, moving an entire household of family here from Santana to Boston, uh, so it's been quite a shift. And we're a family of five. So my partner and we have three children. So yeah, we definitely, um, we're doing big things here. You know, it's always, there's a lot going on in the household, for sure, especially during this time of pandemic. 
Mostly what we have trouble doing is finding the appropriate song for the intro. Uh, but there was actually a song that you had mentioned uh, that was like a, it's, it turned out to be, I guess, a famous uh, uh, evangelical hymnal that came from someone from Santana, which is like something that I was not aware of um, and found that very fascinating. So I'm going to try to track down a copy of that song as the intro, <laughs> but uh, I got to make sure it's like all okayed. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting, uh, an interesting piece of information that that I came across. That uh, once I saw that, I was like, "Yeah, I, I definitely have to include that in the book." Um, yeah, famous composer that um, that lived in Santana for a couple of years and and wrote that song, which became a very popular song like a century ago. Yeah, it's a it's this uh, weird uh, strain, and I really enjoyed the work. You know, so I I, de- I definitely want to talk a little bit more on on your background experience, but I just want to you know, say uh, right off the bat that I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really well done uh, piece of academic work, but that added a lot of kind of like I think what you're trying to go for the heart and uh, the slice of uh, of that life that that, that is here. Um, it was eye opening for me. You know, I, I come from a you know predominantly you know, Catholic tradition, so um, even just kind of being a, a more aware of my evangelical kind of periphery um, down here in, in the central part of the city, I think it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, but so right now you're basically out there shoveling snow with three kids in Boston University. You're, you're a theologian, um, but you, you didn't, uh, you mentioned being here for 12 years, um, but specifically you were working with kid works and living um, in the Townsend neighborhood then. Is, is that, was that, did I read that correct? Yeah, for some time. Yeah. I, I lived, I lived in the Townsend neighborhood for a couple of years, not not the entirety of the 12 to 13 years I was uh, in Santana. But um, yeah, I did spend a couple of years uh, there and definitely a place that I still hold near and dear to my heart, that specific neighborhood. Uh, I also got to know uh, the Myrtle Street neighborhood quite well. And much of that came about through working with KidWorks. Uh, I first got connected to them when I was a college student in the late nineties, wow. So I'm kind of dating myself there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the late nineties, I got connected to the community there. Um, I had already, you know, spent time in Santana before. I think I mentioned that in the book that my, you know, my family would visit churches and in a similar fashion to the way folks, you know, visit Santana for like culture, cultural festivals and uh, other uh, you know, ethnic businesses, things like that. For us, one of the reasons we would go to Santana was for religious gatherings. Uh, so, so I was definitely aware of the city and had already been around, but actually living in the community was a different experience because I actually got to, um, you know, build close friendships with my neighbors and, you know, be a part of the life of the community. Yeah, and I, I can see uh, how embedded you, you were. Just, um, you know, I, I know that this is mostly with the interviews that you did, I think, for the project itself, but definitely seemed uh, inspired by your, your time and experiences there. Um, so how did, like, that uh, that idea, because was it, like, your thesis, and then, or was this actually, okay, this, so this was the thesis, and then actually was one of the rare theses that became a book and is now, like, hopefully doing well and flying off the shelves, and, you know, if it's not, we're, you have to tell everyone to go out and buy it. And 
get signed copies from you directly. Uh, that's what hey, I did. <laughs> yeah, if I can do that, if I can do that, definitely. I'm actually putting in another order this week. So uh, for, for those that want to sign copy. But um, yeah, it was my doctoral thesis. I did my PhD in sociology at UC Irvine. And one of the reasons I studied at Irvine was because I already knew that I wanted to do my research in Santana because that's that's the community I cared about. And now I know I wouldn't necessarily give this advice to everyone looking at doctoral programs, but for me, proximity was a big deal, mm -hmm. right? Because I already had a sense of some of the research I wanted to do. And, you know, if I would have moved away, it would have been much more difficult. Well, like now, you know, I live on the East Coast now and I continued some of the research, but it's a lot more difficult to do from from a distance when you're doing this deep embedded ethnographic work. Mm -hmm. And so I did that as my dissertation and had some great support to turn it into a book. It took a few more years to turn it into a book, but um, thankfully here it is. And you know, to hold that for the first time, I, I mean, I can't describe how, you know, special that felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and, and it definitely was a, a gift. I think it, it sent uh, Santa Ana Twitter on fire, just like seeing the cover uh, from uh, Julie Leopo. Um, so she yeah, definitely, you know, she she, uh, she promoted the book hard and it worked. And I was like, oh, man, better better get this now that it's out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was uh, in some ways a strategic move to, but, but more than anything, because really I'm a fan of her work. So... I actually had reached out before the book was even in production, you know, actually, I want to say maybe like a year or two before it was even close to coming out. And I said, hey, you know, I'm working on this on this project. Maybe in the future we, we can collaborate in some way. And she seemed open to it. But I really just appreciated the way she represented the community and was from the community. So I said, you know, this is what it's about. It's about you know, building with the community, with the people. And um, and just to know that she is uh, a homegrown talent, that mm -hmm. meant a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, uh, yeah, she does uh, good work over at The Voice of OC currently, a lot of uh, other publications here locally. So, uh, mm -hmm. great person. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, part of the reason I actually really got into this work was be the, the basic structure as to how it was set up. Um, so, is it fair to say, it was what ten. Uh, I'm not sure if it was ten and ten, but it was roughly an equal number of uh, evangelical first generation um, individuals. Uh, so uh, the category of Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, kind of you know everyone kind of broadly interpreting their own um, ethnic identity there, um, and then ten Catholic uh, folks from similar experiences there. Is that roughly kind of the um, the basis of a lot of the research? Yeah, yeah. So actually, it was um, 25 and 25. So it was a few more. But um, yeah, th that was the number of folks that I kind of spent more time with in depth. But along the way, obviously, people are introducing you to, you know, their families and their neighbors. And so I'm getting to know a lot of folks along the way. And I already knew a lot of people in the community, but one of the things I tried to do is get to know new people so that I wouldn't just be hearing from folks that I was already familiar with. Um, so I made sure to, to also um, seek out introductions with new people 
that that I was meeting, you know, for the very first time. And so there was kind of a mix in there. You know, some some of these folks were individuals that that I had known for a few years. And then some were folks that I just barely met for for the purpose of the study. Right. And, and there seemed to have been like some really good fortune to, to be there at particular moments that you highlight in the book that I, I think um, you know, it's, are, are sticking with me. There was this one particular phrase that uh, you used from one of the um, young adults or children. I, I think it was maybe a teenager. Uh, with the translation that you know the you know the streets of Santa Ana are both sacred and bloody, but it's a uh, um, I don't know if you want to say the line because you you'll, I don't want to butcher it. And, do you have it? Yeah, it's on page twenty four. I, I do have that as a note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's um, yeah, it was um, a child actually, and and so uh, the line was that. Some children had had started to play with with some food. Uh, there was a small group of kids that, you know, came and took some bread um, that was going to be handed to the families and started to play around with it and toss, you know, pieces of the bread. And then uh, a, a woman, very respected um, neighbor from the community, you know, comes forward and says, you know, ¿Qué están haciendo? ¿Qué no saben que la comida es sagrada? And... You know, sure enough, when when her voice was projected into the courtyard, you know, the kids, they dropped, you know, they dropped the food and they started cleaning it up. You know, uh, in other words, they, they really took her seriously. She was someone that, you know, everyone in the community respected. And, you know, I, I'm sure that we can think of folks like that in, in different neighborhoods. Right. And so in this in this little courtyard, she happened to be, you know, that voice of authority and uh, you know a few minutes later somebody else throws some bread and a little girl tries to imitate what the woman said and she says ¿Qué están haciendo? ¿Qué no saben que la comida está sangrada? And you know a couple of the kids laughed and chuckled because she you know she mixed up the words sagrada and sangrada, right? Which, you know, is a, a a shift of between holy or saintly and bloody, right? And that was a, an, an incident that stuck with me. I'm glad, it, I'm glad you recalled it because, you know, it definitely, uh, at the time it was just kind of a funny incident. But... You know, years later, for some reason, that vo the voices, you know, the voices stuck with me. And as I was writing the book, that story came back to me. And because I added new things in the book as compared to the dissertation version of it, you know, the book version looks a lot different. So, you know, stories kept coming to me from experiences that I had in the community. And I would think, OK, you know what? This one works here. You know, this this particular story fits. And that was one of those stories that it really resonated with me and because to me it represented this aspect of, you know, by, by the though it was said by mistake, it represented kind of the sacredness of, of the community. But also, you know, I think of the hard work and the labor that, that people put into their, uh, their homes and their livelihood you know, to, to sustain their neighborhoods. 
And so I thought, wow, yes, it is. It's it's both sacred and, and, and bloody, you know, the sense of blood, sweat and tears, right? That people uh, people care about their communities mm-hmm. and, you know, people care about their neighborhoods and they care about their neighbors and they look out for each other. And so that was one of the other things, too, that, you know, there's been messages here and there about, you know, Central Santana uh, being, quote unquote, under resourced. And, you know, I talk a little bit about those statistics here and there, but I also wanted to make sure that people recognize that Central Santana is rich. You know, it's it's rich in culture. Um, it's rich in community support. Um, it's rich in talent. Um, and, and, and even I would say, you know, there are plenty of um, young people getting educated, um, going to college, um, and even just committing themselves to their work in elementary, you know, middle school, um, high school. So, so I wanted to make sure to also counteract that sense of like, you know, we're always at a deficit, you know, we're always doing things wrong. We're always, and I, being in the community for me was also experiencing the many gifts of the community. Right. So I hope that that part came out. And with that story, that, that idea of like being sacred and bloody, it's like, you know, the two coming together. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, speaking from, from my own experience, um, seeing a lot more individuals kind of make it through the hurdles of higher education and then kind of like, getting into more professional fields and then that slowly kind of shifting with time. You know, if we look at it just, you know, purely from a statistical basis, it's there. Um, but, you know, all those stories that don't get captured, like um, I, I do think that the city um, actually has probably better outcomes than it would just if you're only looking at the economic of you know of the place uh, because there are so many people that are involved in their churches um, in their community groups that have very strong uh, ties uh, to each other and you know those uh, relation uh, relationships that you kind of talk about uh, in there um, yeah. and you know, that is something that yeah, we don't uh, talk about enough or celebrate and definitely want to do something different because uh, like the area that you're um, that you were at with a near near the KidWorks area. It's really kind of um, at the intersection of two major historic um, court cases, right? So you have the Mendez family that's just right up the street from uh, from Central uh, Santana, right there on Rate Street, and the you know the family still owns it. Um, and then the Mulkey Reitman case, which helped end housing uh, segregation uh, nationally, and then that's mm-hmm. just on Highland Street, like you know, a little further um, uh, further east. But, you know, those are the stories that still make up the central part of the city. It's like uh, there's so many folks that are involved in that that um, we don't necessarily celebrate uh, as much. And you know, maybe for some reasons that, you know, they're more isolated from the rest of the community and you know, kind of chilling, doing their own thing and uh, maybe not uh, appearing in, in the newsprint as much. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I agree. So with um, you know, your time there, like what was... There, I'm sure there were so many lessons for you, but what did you, you know, get out of the experience of writing this book, and you know that you're hoping that you can share with uh, you know a larger audience? Yeah, well, you know, along with some of what I shared already, um, you know, the book is about how folks construct a sense of belonging and ethnic identity. You know how they make sense of. Uh, adjusting to to a new place um, and I say a new place because you know the book is specifically about immigrants I know that 
not everyone that's uh, Latinx or Mexican-American is uh, an immigrant, of course. You know, in Santana, there's there are plenty of, uh, you know, people that are born and even g- generations back, right? Um, but I focus specifically on um, the immigrant population because I thought Santana presents a really uh, unique space uh, because of the community solidarity and because of the many different religious communities and religious spaces. Uh, I thought this is a very um, energizing and energized place. Uh, and so looking at it from that perspective, from the, from the immigrant experience, um, what I saw in the communities that I studied, the, the church communities, uh, was that really faith was a, a strong source of, of hope, a strong uh, basis for uh, persevering through life's challenges, <clears throat> making sense of the world. Um, and the, the theme that I looked at, of course, more, more than anything, was uh, understanding themselves as ethnic people, uh, as people with uh, ethnic heritage, with an ethnic lineage, right? And how does ethnicity and faith, how do they inform each other? And so, you know, the big theme for those that haven't read the book, you know, one of the big uh, approaches in the book is that I compare the experience of Catholics and evangelicals. Um, so traditionally, and, you know, mo- these the folks that I interviewed were all from Mexico, right? And so traditionally, uh, the Mexican origin population has been one of the most Catholic populations not only in the in the u.s but we could even say in the world yeah (laughs) right right yeah and so for the catholic population for many of the catholic residents that i interviewed uh the idea of ethnic identity and religious identity were so closely intertwined right it was it was difficult to sort of draw a line and say you know here's where where one of them ends and the other one begins, right? And oftentimes when folks talked about their culture uh, or their ethnicity, they would describe it along religious lines. Uh, and so I, that's an aspect that I kind of expected would happen just because from living in the community, I saw it, I observed it. And sure enough, when I talked to people and when I interviewed them about it, you know, there was the very close link Um so in that sense, that wasn't a surprise. Then when I talked to evangelicals, <clears throat> so there's a there's been growth amongst evangelicals within the Latinx and the uh, Mexican origin population as well, and many of them have. Well, actually, I would say one of the core tenets of evangelicalism is this conversion experience, right? Mm-hmm that you undergo a religious conversion. And a lot of a lot of religions have a sense of conversion. Um, but within evangelicalism, I mean, that's really one of the core markers of authentic faith, you know, that, that you're born again, right? And sometimes we even will refer to folks as being born again, like you're a born again or you're born again, right? Um, it's part of uh, the theology. Um, and certainly it's within Catholic theology as well. But 
in evangelicalism, there's a strong emphasis on a conversion experience, like a point at which you can say, here's where I became evangelical. Well, they would say, and I say us too, because that I grew up in evangelicalism and I'm still connected to, um, you know, Protestant traditions in many ways. And the idea is you, you can point to a place where, you know, there was your point of conversion. So then the question became, becomes, how does that inform one's ethnic identity? When there's this point of leaving the past behind and becoming a new person. Right. Uh, because there's such a strong emphasis on leaving the past behind. Now, certainly in Catholicism, there are uh, many points of transformation, of growth, of spiritual growth, um, even of uh, having redemptive experiences and letting go of the past, like through confession, for example, of reconciliation. Right. And so it's not that that is non-existent in Catholicism. But within evangelicalism, there's such a strong emphasis on the conversion experience. So for evangelicals to think about ethnicity, there was often this tension between who I was in the past and who I am now. And so one of the big questions I ask is, what does that mean for individuals in terms of how they understand themselves when they think of themselves as having let go of the past? And what does that mean in terms of building community together mm -hmm. when you're wrestling with this idea of disconnecting from the past? One of the arguments that I make in the book is that so much of our sense of ethnicity has to do with having a sense of collective memory, right? The sense of coming from somewhere or being connected to an ancestral lineage or being connected to certain traditions, right? And so that is the, I would say the core of the book. This wrestling with where do we situate ourselves in terms of the present and the past? Mm -hmm. And for immigrants, the present and the past often relates to this idea of crossing over. You know, you cross, you cross a border and for some, there's the opportunity to go back and forth. For others, there isn't. And what I find is that oftentimes when you put religion and faith into the equation, this idea of crossing over has faith implications too. And so it becomes um, this ongoing negotiation of how do I stay connected to my past how do I think about the future? And these two religious traditions, what I found was really provide different tools, distinct types of tools for negotiating where we came from and where we're going. Yeah, no, I, I definitely picked up on that. And I think one of the, the tools that you um, really d dove into um was the physical presence of the the Catholic experience um, in, embedded within the space itself through uh, both religious iconography, shrines, and um, then you know cultural practices around uh, the Dia de la Virgen de Guadalupe on December twelfth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, like I, I always just it was to, like 
you're, you, it's like a fish in water, right? Just like it, I, I take it for granted uh, that that is the way that space is um, embedded here in like central Santa San Ana. Um, But you also kind of show the fragility of of some of that, right? Like, I don't know if you want to talk about how, you know, your analysis on that particular subject unfolded. Because I'm, you know, urban planner by training, so I really like when we like start looking at cultural practices embedded within space. I'm like, oh yes, tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, I appreciate I appreciate uh, you bringing that up because that was something that was in the back of my mind as I was writing the book. You know, how does this play out from an urban planning perspective how do we create spaces in a just way that take into consideration the 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 faith practices of the people and even the faith diversity as well right Mm -hmm. because you're also uh thinking about spaces where not everyone believes the same so how do we create just and equitable spaces that take into consideration religious difference and even possible tension right um but also embodied practices that uh, are really played out in physical space. Like we, you know, we think about, uh, I think this is a very Western mentality. And I, I think in the U S we can often think of, um, faith as just this internal thing that people hold on to. And, um, you know, being from a Protestant background, I, I think that's even uh, a very Protestant thing I would say, um, that's, permeated the larger u.s culture right to think of faith as just something that that you know we hold in our heart or in our mind or like belief right but i wanted to think about how faith is actually enacted in physical space in material ways um in the in the urban landscape and so one of the things that i saw was yes uh especially amongst catholics there was a lot of adaptation and innovation in the physical space of the neighborhood. You know, the building of shrines, uh, the iconography. Um, I would even say the physical ritual, the embodiment of certain rituals, like, um, you know, making the sign of the cross, genuflecting, right, um, in physical spaces where that becomes uh, second nature, where you're not thinking about it anymore, right? Uh, and I mentioned one of the one of the accounts where, you know, there was a little shrine in the corner of, uh, of an apartment courtyard. And, you know, when people would cross over from the back alley, they would, they would go in front of that shrine. And a lot of the folks that would do that, a lot of the neighbors would always make the sign of the cross. They would genuflect as they would, um, kind of walk across that threshold. Right. And so the way that the physical reminders of faith, shape the way that people interact with their physical environment, I think is really important to, to be mindful of. Um, now the part that you mentioned, the fragile, the fragility aspect of it. Um, and I've, I saw that both amongst Catholics and Protestants, um, where, for example, I was really saddened when, when I saw that that particular shrine had been taken down it had been torn down. And one of the reasons beyond you know beyond the 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 faith significance of the shrine it also i thought was sad that i knew some of the people that had built it and you know they had really put a lot of care into it um you know these are folks that you know worked these skills for their jobs and um had developed you know were really 
uh, experts of their trade, and they had brought over those skills to then build this this shrine. And then to see that just get taken down, you know, not even like transplanted or anything, but just torn down. And and as I say in the book, you know, it was literally that space was literally whitewashed, you know, and thinking about how you know folks invest in a space like that, they had gotten permission to do it. And then, you know, I guess the permission got taken away. Uh, but to think about how uh, that communicates something to the community, right? When when something like that gets taken away, you know, an outsider may say, well, that was just an eyesore maybe, or uh, it didn't fit in in the space. But to the community, that was really a source of hope, right? And so it actually was built into the, the rhythms of, you know, of daily interactions, of weekly interactions, of annual festivals and celebrations. And so you're not just taking away, like, the material. You're, you're also altering the, the communal life. You know, you're altering the communal life. And, of course, folks found a way to try to adapt, but I know that it wasn't the same. You know, they built... They built another smaller um, alt, uh, altar in another space that was more hidden. But uh, I know that it didn't represent the same thing in this sort of more public way to the community. Um, one other thing I'll say about the the, the Protestant experience, uh, evangelical Protestant experience, you know, uh, many of them are uh, meeting in rented spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of churches in Santana, but um, a lot of these evangelical and Pentecostal churches, you know, they have to make do with what's available. And very often it means uh, renting a, a space from someone else. And so one of the churches that I had studied, you know, their their building was getting torn down. And so... You know, realizing that they, you know, they were also being displaced. Um, so, so again, there is another shift that has to take place in the community, right? In the sort of natural rhythms of of that community. Yeah, and as a um, you know, someone who used to process permits for the city, it's actually it's fairly hard to to cite a, a church via our regulations because we expect like extra cars and traffic and then like neighbors complain. So then like I'm not sure if you saw that experience where some would pop up and then have to move relatively quickly after a citation. Because uh, I, yes. I, I saw that fairly, fairly frequently. Yes, yes, definitely. Definitely. I did see that as well. And um, uh, as you know, matter of fact, you know, we were part of uh, I was uh, a part of a uh, uh, faith community myself that met in a in a non-traditional sense and we and but for us we kind of wanted it that way we you know we wanted to just meet like in homes for example um, and so we kind of had the freedom to uh, live out our faith in a more kind of organic communal way but um but for some folks you know they in some some church communities they start out where they can but they they're really hoping to to expand and to build you know, some sort of facility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not always possible. All right. And, uh, but for some, it, it, it succeeds beyond expectations, uh, I could almost say, right? Like, I, that's the other thing. I was very surprised by the, um, uh, 
the influence that some uh, evangelicals from Santana have had, like um, on a more national and even global scale. Um, and, you know, some of those movements, because I, I don't think we've ever or I've never really come across other writings talking about that um, international scope. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned that as well, because I think that that gets uh, overlooked. The fact that a place like Santana is a point of connection, uh, a point of transnational connection, um, when you examine the um, the faith element, the religious element. Um, we have, you know, institutions and organizations and leaders that are coming in from, you know, all over the world, but especially Latin America and the Caribbean. And they're, they're coming to Santana to, you know, connect with some of the communities there and to draw in from, you know, larger groups of, of affiliates in the region. Um, and you also see it uh, in, in the Catholic communities as well. Sometimes there'll be like a you know, a particular uh, image of a, of a virgin that that is brought into town or of a saint. And and then folks from that region, you know, gather around. And, and by the way, it's not even just you know, within the Christian churches. I mean, I one of the I remember I recall also there was a, a Buddhist gathering mm -hmm. at one of the local temples as well during the time that, that I was doing my research. I mean, it was outside of my research, but I remember seeing you know, a lot of folks coming in from all over. Yeah, that's uh, the Jade Buddha that uh, did its little uh, traveling stint. And uh, was that, um, I want to say it was on Sullivan, but I'm not. Uh... That's exactly, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly what it was. Because I, I lived, I believe uh, I lived at Townsend at the time, which is right down the street. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it got packed full of cars, mm -hmm. that whole area. Um, yeah, so, but in, in, in Santana, that particular phenomenon that you're naming is really oriented towards Latin America. So what I mentioned in the book is that there are uh, religious organizations and churches and institutions that from South America, um, from Argentina, for example, from Brazil, uh, you have um, La Iglesia Universal, for example, Pare de Sufrir, you know, they have a big, uh, big following uh, there on Bristol, right? And that that church is from Brazil. Um, you have uh, churches that were originally founded in the Caribbean. Um, there's a movement from Puerto Rico that has a, a church there as well. Um, they have an interesting story because, like you said, they're one of the ones that were able to get a larger building uh, and uh, actually purchase a, an older mainline, predominantly white church that was in decline. They were able to to purchase it now most of their members are not puerto rican but the movement that they're a part of was uh is a pentecostal movement from puerto rico so um so they're represented there um you have a church like um um oh goodness i can't believe i'm i'm blanking out on them right now but um over there on santa Ana boulevard um the um Temple the from, no the ones from guadalajara though it's a it's a, a movement from guadalajara um oh my goodness um it, a, it, it'll it'll come back to me it, it, it happens to me all the time but yeah right now i can say like well i'm not the expert in this i, I defer to the professor yeah 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 <laughs> so but 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 the point is these are all transnational movements that's what i'm getting at which mm -hmm. are 
you know, these are movements that because a lot of times with uh, particularly with the study of um, Protestantism, a lot of times people assume that, you know, folks are converting to a type of Protestantism that is uh, predominantly based in the U.S. and, um, you know, they're oriented towards only towards like white leaders that are here in the U.S. And yes, there is some of that. Most definitely there is some of that. But there are also these other movements that are actually from Latin America. And so you have, you know, uh, Latinx people in the U.S. that are joining these movements that are actually Latin American in origin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the stuff they're hearing is more from Latin American leaders, not necessarily from U.S. Uh, white U.S. leaders. It sounds like we need to send a letter to the Pew Research Center to, to make sure that they have follow-up questions to their religious study surveys, because I think that that is a major distinction. Like, for me, I've never read into any of the data. That, there's absolutely no data point uh, uh, on that, and I, I think that's absolutely fascinating there. Um, yeah, yeah. So the... the yeah, the thing is, and maybe the reader or the the listeners are, are going to thank you, but you have a hard stop in about ten minutes or nine minutes. Um, so I want to make sure that you add anything like before I start throwing like you know fifty more questions at you. Um, so if there's anything you want to add before I like, I literally have like ten more questions I can ask you. So I'm gonna <laughs> gonna see. Well, why don't you go, why don't you go ahead and ask me the questions, and 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 along the way with the questions as things occur, I'll just add them on. Sure. Um, so I guess one of the big things, and you, you leave this open towards the the end of your work, is um, you know still kind of trying to figure out and understand um, how in a place uh, like Santa Ana does the next generation experience uh, their religious uh, life? And I know that, that was kind of out, outside the scope of the book, but I don't know if you had any initial thoughts um, kind of as this work was developing, because you kind of left it open to say like, yes, this is something we didn't concentrate on that would be of interest. So. Yeah. And in some ways, I think uh, that was a way to signal that I have, you know, I have a lot of interest in, in the next generation and, I care about the first generation deeply. I'm second generation Mexican American, Chicano, you could say as well. And so my parents were were born in Mexico and migrated to the US. So I was born in the US, but I care about the first generation, you know, my parents generation and and also young young immigrants cuz we still have also young mm-hmm. Im- immigrants, 1.5 generation. So I care about uh the immigrant generation uh most definitely. But I also have a lot of interest in the second generation and beyond because increasingly that, or, or rather I should say not increasingly, but already that is the majority of the of the Latino, Latina, Latinx population. Um, it is U.S. born uh, Latinx individuals. So the trends, when we talk about religious trends, faith, faith participation, faith orientations, when we think about that, we have to pay attention to the second generation and beyond because not only is that the future, that's the present. And increasingly, they will be the ones that have influence within the institutions. They already do in many places. What often happens within religious institutions that are ethnic and there's a whole other, you know, body of literature on this type of stuff. But oftentimes they cater to the first generation. You know, the ethnic institution will cater to the, the, the immigrant generation because that's their, that's their specialization. That's their niche, right, to, to 
speak the language of the first generation to give examples and use models and cater to the immigrant generation, which is important. And someone has to do it. But sometimes what happens is then the second generation and beyond is neglected. And we sometimes think of that generation as, well, those are the kids. But no, they're not just kids. I mean, these are, you know, adults now. Mm -hmm. and, and in some cases, even elderly people. I, I yeah. <laughs> In the process of my interviews, I met elderly folks that were like second, third, even fourth generation. Yeah, we had a lot you of know. audios, yeah. So, uh... <laughs> a lot of audio. So... So we have to think about the later generations as well. And one of the trends in the later generation is uh, disaffiliation from formal religious institutions. Um, there is generally now not not of course there's still young 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 folks and second gen uh, Latinos in these churches. So it's not like they suddenly disappeared, but there is also. A considerable number and statistically as you go into the later generations that number has has grown mm -hmm. at least to the third generation uh, so what do we make of the generation that doesn't attend a church consistently or doesn't belong to a church consistently some of the the opinions are well you know are they becoming atheists are they agnostic are they well, for me, I'm interested in finding out what type of spiritualities are folks engaging in, you know, because just be, just because they don't attend a traditional church doesn't mean that suddenly they are devoid of any type of spiritual practice or any type of spiritual belief. They may be, but I don't assume that. And in fact, that's why I end the story in the particular scene that I end with, because here we have a gathering that's, I would say, very spiritual, but not necessarily in a formal religious sense, right? It's this open gathering where folks are honoring their ancestors, they're, they're honoring their loved ones that have passed away. And specifically, I'm referring to the, uh, the Noche del Tares event, which uh, was really one of my favorite events to attend uh, when I lived in Santana. And um, I, initially, I didn't do that as as part of research i would just go you know mm -hmm. that was something that i just loved to go to and as i was finishing my work I, I realized you know this this is meaningful and actually connects to this other work that i'm doing because there i saw a lot of different generations coming together but in particular i noticed that there were representatives of the younger generations and of the second and third generation that were uh, present and that were engaging in these, uh, again, as I would say, very spiritual activities, though not necessarily formally religious. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I think we have to con continue to look at how folks sustain these religious practices, these faith practices, spiritual practices. And in relation to the big question of the book, how folks continue to maintain a sense of ethnic identity, right? That sense of connection, that sense of memory. And sometimes it's happening through these rituals and through these practices that are very spiritual, but are not taking place in a church. And my sense, someone else recently asked me this. My sense is that 
folks do hold on to the traditions that they that they came from. They don't necessarily just throw them all out. Some, I mean, some people do. Don't get me wrong. Some some people do because there is. There, I mean, there there is a such thing as also you know religious trauma. Some people even have experienced religious trauma. I mean, that's that's a whole other topic, right? So there are there are reasons why people will walk away, and sometimes just because they don't you know just doesn't work for them. They don't believe it anymore. They don't buy it. Politics. I mean. What's going on now, you know, churches that are aligning themselves with, you know, white supremacy, things like that. Yeah. I mean, that's reality. That'll, so, that'll lose. So, so yeah. some people of color are going to say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. Um, but some folks, what I what I find and what I would like to explore further into the future is how folks find ways to stay connected through religious practices through spirituality even if they're not part of the formal church so that's yeah that's one of the the interests all right so we'll bring you back when the when the paper's out on on the subject or when you're ready to present some findings yeah 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 i am i'm working on part two of the book which is going to be a little bit different it's not just going to be a simple continuation of the book. I'm going to grapple with other types of questions, such as some related to the the political issues that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm I'm going to deal with some of those. So I'm working on a second project. It'll probably still take a, a little while to get that out. So it's not, it won't be out like in the next few months or anything like that. But um, I want to do it in such a way that speaks to the current issues that we're seeing, uh, and I'm also working on a couple of other projects related to uh, Latinx identities and um, somewhat related to spirituality and also related to other arts, arts movements and different things like that. All right. Very cool. Well, definitely a wide range. Um, you know, looking forward to the future research and uh, everything else that kind of comes out. I, like I said, big fan of the book. Um, can't recommend it enough. Uh, everyone, uh, let's see, how, how should they follow you, contact you, or try to get a hold of one of those uh, rare signed copies that uh, they have to personally ask for? Yeah, I mean, if folks want to find me on social media, um, they can find me. My handle is uh, Yo Calvillo, and I'll spell that out. It's not spelled exactly like my name. It's Yo, Y-O, and then C. A L V as in Victor, I and then Y O. Cool. So you so there's two yos, yo Calvi yo, and um, so so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram under that handle, and you can reach out to me there. Uh, I also you know I'm on email all the time, so you can email me at Calvillo. Now this is my real spelling, uh, C A L. V is in Victor, I L L O at B U dot E D U. Cool. And now that I made you go through all that, uh, we will actually post it on on the summary, so it makes it a lot easier, so people can just click on it. Because um, I know I, when, when someone spells something out, my brain just like puts everything in reverse. I'm like, I have no idea what order things go in now. There you go. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely appreciate you on. Um, wanted to kind of close out with one of the uh, lines that you had was that you know. Uh, ethnicity is to grieve to the suffering of the ancestors and to be enraptured by the victories of the elders. 
And uh, I thought that that was very um, poignant, moving, and again, just appreciate your time uh, doing the project, uh, you know, giving us this gift and kind of writing down some of these histories um, and to do it in a way that's so respectful of the subject and also uh, enlightening. And that, that's tough to do. So, you know, <laughs> good job. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for reaching out. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll continue in dialogue. At least I hope so. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I I wanted to show you that there were like some old photos from like old um, um, Mexican-American churches in in Santa Ana that were like over at some file at the OC Historical Society. But, okay. Yeah, but like I'm like, oh, you'd be into these. <laughs> so like... I, I yeah, I don't know if the formal interview ended yet already, oh. but uh, <laughs> for example, I I um I got a lot of help from uh, in the over in the uh, Santa Ana History Room by um, Dylan Thompson. Yeah. You know Dylan. Oh wait, wait, wait. So, so, oh, Dylan Almendral. Sorry. I, Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Dylan Almendral. Yeah. Yeah, Dylan helped me out, uh, you know, to find some of the resources there that had um, some of the church histories. And I found I found a few in other places as well. But uh, in terms of what was in the Santa Ana History Room, he really um, helped me out with some of the historical documents there. Um, since then, I've actually acquired additional archival materials from other places. So I've got other material that some of it is about Santana specifically, but some of it is also about um, just the larger region, and then Santana shows up. So on the history side of things, yeah, Santana really had a lot going on. And when you talk about, you know, the, the, the Mexican-American community, for example, uh, there was a lot happening already from, you know, a century and a half ago. You know, mm-hmm. there, there, and, and specifically around faith and religion, there was already a lot of movement, a lot of activity going on. So, in some ways, I feel like we end up losing out to like a larger city like Los Angeles. You know, mm-hmm. I think the attention quickly turns to LA, and thinking about LA is like the center of um, the of the Mexican American and the Latinx community, and now, of course, increasingly the Central American community. Mm-hmm. So I think it's easy to look towards L.A., but, you know, Santana was a center unto itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's hard to be in the shadow of, a, what you know, when you're a 3 million person county, it's hard to be in the shadow of an 11 million person county and it just all gets lumped together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, you know, appreciate uh, your time and I'll be respectful of it because those kids aren't going to take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks so much. So that was uh, Professor Calvillo coming in uh, from Boston, uh, where it's snowing, and here we are in the middle of winter enjoying our T-shirts. So um, definitely moved out there for the right reasons <laughs> uh, for, for the Professor Oriole ship, but uh, we can envy, or he's probably envious of us and our weather today. Um, you know, ho- hoping that, you know, that was something that uh, folks enjoyed. Uh, definitely going to look to see what other um, individuals we can get on uh, to review their work to kind of uh, promote and uh, make sure that people uh, are aware of these wonderful things that are happening in Santa Ana and this really uh, kind of culturally rich experience that we're all in and everyone's involved in it in a, you know, from a slightly different angle.
cool. Um, so if you did enjoy this, uh, you know, please uh, like, subscribe, share, comment, or you know, give us any kind of feedback, because that's always appreciated. Uh, so today we're hoping to get a uh, hymnal that was uh, written in Santa Ana and then became kind of a spiritual uh, hit of, of sorts. So I'm going to try to track down that information, and that's hopefully what you're hearing right now. And I uh, just hope you have a good uh, day, and uh, enjoy... You know, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, dawning of 2021. Yo soy 